0: Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Rumi,
1: And I'm Sam Then, Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we chat with finalist from MasterChef Australia 2021, Kishwa Chaudhry. Kishwa reflects on the origins of her passion for cooking, how her relationship with food helps connect her to her hybrid identity, stereotypes and stigmas that need to be broken when it comes to the kitchen and how she's using food as a platform to help address important social and environmental issues. We also hear about Kishwa's MasterChef experience, how the process helped her grow not only as a chef but also as a person and get a sneak peek into some of the behind the scenes secrets from the show.
0: Before we jump in, we know we've been saying for a little while now that we've been working on an exciting project that we'll be announcing soon. Unfortunately, some run-ins with COVID and crazy life schedules have delayed us a bit, but we're just about ready to get our very first prototypes. So fingers crossed we'll be able to tell you what we've been creating behind the scenes very, very soon. Thank you so much for your patience. And in the meantime, stay tuned on our Instagram at Between underscore podcast and catch up on any of our other dope episodes that you may have missed.
1: Now on to today's podcast.
0: Kishwa, thank you so much for joining us today. This feels surreal because we watch you on our TVs and now we get to meet you on a call. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rami.
1: Yeah, this is awesome. We're so excited to speak to you about your relationship with food, your experience on MasterChef, but also your philanthropic work as well. Um, but before then, for anyone who hasn't watched MasterChef, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and upbringing?
2: So I was born and brought up here in Melbourne to Bangladeshi and Indian parents. So my mum is from East India and my father is from Bangladesh. So I had very, very strong Bengali roots, not just culinary roots, but in culture as well. And then I had a pretty normal, I guess, South Asian Australian life. I grew up in the southeastern suburbs, went to school, After that, went to Monash Uni and then decided to study something that was quite niche. So I had to leave Melbourne, move to London, and I was in Germany, in Heidelberg for a little while as well. Um, Post that, I met my husband and then I started my business, which was in Dhaka because all of the printing industry basically all over the world was shutting down during that time. It was around that global financial crisis Mm. sort of time. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so... I guess by the time I was 26, I had uprooted myself, lived on three continents, was about to have my first baby and was growing my business.
0: Crazy. You've like stuck your fingers in so many pies and we really want to talk about some of that. But going back to your upbringing a little bit, we read online that your parents were pillars in the Bangladeshi community in Victoria. What did that look like for you as a child? How involved were they? So my parents were
2: amongst the first Bangladeshi migrants here um, and Bengali migrants. So 40 years ago, what that looked like was whenever we would have any festivals or all of the occasions that we celebrate now, everyone would work to make that very, very special, not Mm -hmm. just the cultural events, but things like the Bengali Language School. So you would have the Indian Bengali community and the Bangladeshi community all come together to put these events on. And there was this feeling of we're doing something very special or creating some sort of legacy. So something like Oishaki, which is Veshaki, the new year Mm -hmm. that was celebrated, would be in a small hall, but the stalls would be run by people who were cooking from home or, I don't know, face painting or doing henna art. And then all the dramas and everything that would be put on was like a production where everyone would be painting the backdrops and then we would be learning the dances, And it was just everyone who was Bengali at that time coming together to establish something, in contrast to what it is now, which is the South Asian Festival, which is something that I'm going to be uh, attending this year, that's at Birirung Ma in, like, Federation Square in the city and it has (laughs) 10,000 foot traffic. So the communities come a really, really long way from what it was like and um, in terms of what mum and dad used to do, our house was an open house, really, really. People would come over all the time and it was like our home was the heart of the community. And yeah, my mom and dad were like quite the pillars of that, making people feel welcome, yeah. helping people settle in and just being there all the time for that. So we really grew up in the heart of the Bengali community yeah. here in Melbourne.
0: That's so wholesome.
1: Yeah, it is. And that aspect of our community where there's an open door policy and we're all about kind of bringing everyone together with us is something that we absolutely love. And I think it's something that's so special that sometimes we do take for granted growing up in a Western society. Um, It's interesting because with all of the things that you've talked about so far, you haven't mentioned food yet in terms of the things that you're involved with. And that's how we've come to know you, right? Through MasterChef. Um, Where did that passion for you kind of start from?
2: So I think there was an underlying passion that I've always had. And you go on something like MasterChef that validates it. Um, But in terms of my passion for cooking, it's something that I have always just been surrounded by. Um, What we spoke about in the previous question, I think it was banding together and cooking like before Eid or during Ramadan, you know, folding little momos or patties and then mm. preparing all of this food. It's just something that my parents and my grandparents and the whole community would come together to do, and it's something that I've always known. It's just um, I have a young daughter now, and I know from the age of two onwards she's been in the kitchen and she knows how to make things and cook things, and, like, she'll roll out a barata with my dad. <laughs> so it's something that in me. At a very young age, and it wasn't just preparing food. I think it was also produce and how we eat and a particular way of life where we source food from. Those things were very integral and important to my family. So, yeah, yeah it was just very, very much ingrained in my upbringing. I just didn't realize how special or unique that was until I had this very public happened to my life.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like, you know, all through your life, it was such a big part that you almost took for granted until then you got this great opportunity to really showcase everything. And then even now you're doing so much with food and we do want to touch into some of the philanthropic work you're doing as well around sustainability and food that you just mentioned. Um, But you did mention before that in between you did move to London and if I'm not wrong, you did like a graphic design course or something, right? Did you move away from food at that point or was it always still part of your life?
2: No. So I think moving to London, London was my first home outside my parents' home. So it was my coming of age. (laughs) I was definitely cooking different food at that time. I think I really, really fell in love with pastry. So from our doorstep, we were three hours away from the center of Paris. So we would jump on a train. um, And at that time, my husband and I were students. So it was quite cheap to get on those little Euro rails and cut a student ticket, go into Paris, eat pastries and really, really Mm. good food. And yeah, yeah, at that time, I was moving away from just cooking home cooked meals, which was what we would cook because i was studying and working and traveling and all of that but also that's the time that i just got to be myself and cook for myself so i was Mm. i definitely like shoe pastry and i was like um i guess it's not experimenting but just cooking the things that i loved and i think my cooking in different continents i've lived on really takes a lot of inspiration from the ingredients available there it's like, what are the best being found in this city? So whenever I travel, even now, aside from, you know, following a food trail, there's always a part of every single holiday, even with kids, where we make sure that we're staying in a place that has a kitchen and I actually go to markets, whether it's in Spain, whether it's even like Nevada, Las Vegas, where I'm actually <laughs> at the markets picking up produce and cooking something for myself. So I'm always itching to cook. Oh, that's, awesome. that's
0: so interesting yeah. when you're in London, for example, what would you say you enjoyed cooking the most as opposed to like something that you didn't really cook in Australia?
2: Um, I live very close to borough markets, so they had amazing produce. I think the one thing that I probably cooked a lot in London, I started baking a lot of bread. So I think that's where my passion for baking bread, particularly, that's not something I was doing. I was baking cakes and making a lot of desserts when I was growing up. And that was a very afternoon tea thing. But I don't think I made a lot of bread for myself until I went to London.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. So I guess you were saying before that you were a home cook and you're cooking for yourself and experimenting. How and when did you decide to then apply for MasterChef? Like, do you remember where you were and why you made that decision?
2: Yes, yeah, so it's pretty much like, your origin story of this podcast. Um, <laughs> we were in lockdown, and my husband just arrived as the borders were shutting down from overseas. And we didn't want to stay with our parents. So, my parents actually own a farm in Nanagoon. We have a cattle um, farm. Wow. So, what we thought we were doing, we thought we were going away for two weeks. We ended up living there for a year. So, I was out in Nanagoon homeschooling my kids. Living the good farm life, literally living off the land. It was just the best. Twenty twenty was just one of the best years of my life. Like reconnecting with the land, reconnecting with my family, working from home, homeschooling. It was, despite it being, I guess, a really life changing and it was a really sad time um, for me. I just sort of took what the universe gave me, and that's when the ad for Master Chef came on, and my son was really adamant that. I should put in an application. Oh. I was, that's exactly where I was. I was on a farm in Nanagoon, living off the land and my son told me to apply. So that's where it <laughs> happened.
1: That's amazing. And I think the whole concept of living off the land and kind of giving back to the environment in that way is something for us to all be thinking about more and more of as we head further into our climate crisis. It's yeah. amazing to hear the, how you'll be able to do that. Were you always a MasterChef fan?
2: I'm a diehard MasterChef fan. Never ever thought I'd be on the other side of the TV screen. Mm.
1: I can imagine. Cause it's so different, obviously watching it from home versus being there in that environment. We've got a few questions about that coming up, but in terms of the audition process, what did that look like? And when did it start to click for you? Like, Hey, there's actually something that could lead me somewhere really special.
2: I, I guess that didn't click for me until we were very, very far into shooting itself, mm. the audition process because of all of the lockdowns was online.
0: Mm. And I
2: think there was the white apron cook. Mm. You could be there for five days. Um, I ended up staying there for seven months. But wow. it packed for a weekend. That's it. So it didn't really hit me until I think I had the white apron and I wasn't going home. And I was like, I'm going to need more clothes and I'm going to need more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no, I'm in Chef. <laughs>
0: Oh my God. But then aside from that, what was your reaction like when you did get the white apron and like, you know, you made it into the top 20 and you were going to be part of the televised group? I think, um, it it was such
2: an honor to be there. It was such an honor to be a part of the MasterChef family. Like I said, I'm a huge MasterChef fan in that I really love following, um, all of the early contestants and yeah. Master Chef is such a wholesome show. It's not mm. just being about food. I've always really loved following the people and their stories and their passion. And I think it's just one of those platforms where it goes beyond food, mm. um, especially with these new judges coming in. And so to have your name written amongst such an esteemed group of people who I really <laughs> admire, that was amazing. But I don't think reality hit me until we were a few months in. Like I, I truly didn't feel like I was going through that. I was just surviving every day, surviving the next thing that happened to me. And I was waiting. I guess I was waiting for everything to pass to really recollect mm-hmm. what it is that had happened and what I had done
0: That's crazy, because it almost feels like these things never happen to you, right? Mm. You always feel like, oh, these things happen to other people, but they won't happen to me. And then you end up on one of like the biggest TV shows in Australia. What was some of the best advice you got from the judges or other contestants while you were going through this process of suddenly having to stay there and having to just take that one day at a time? Because it must have been so challenging.
2: Yeah, I agree with you about it, you know, this not happening to you. But I think to me it was so surreal because I had a very complete life. I was a very mm. whole person before I went into Master um, Like I was sort of the boss of my own world. I had my life very much sorted. This was such a big spanner in all of that. And I was just like, oh, what have I done? It's a whole nother chapter starting. um. So that was, I think it was coming to grips with that. And some of the best advice, Jock, Mel, Andy were absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, having Mel there in the room, mm. so wonderful. Just having a woman who is constantly sort of paving that way and breaking a lot of boundaries. So to know that someone is there who's gone through a lot to be where she is, to be standing at the top of that room is always just so encouraging and she is just as wonderful as you see her on screen she's exactly mm. like that rolling jock was fantastic especially in the early days i was very nervous and timid and shy about ending up there. But like i said we were in isolation living on a farm and then <laughs> yeah. on a tv set so it was like such a 180 for me um he came up to me once and he was eating straight out of the pot and i was just like oh my god it's jocks on Frillo." Uh, <laughs> you- You know, you can cook. And I was just like, yeah, I really, really love the cooking part of this. It's so much fun. It's so exhilarating. And he's like, don't worry about the rest of everything else. Don't worry about the TV stuff. Just cook. And that's what I did. I just kept my head down and cooked. And I think someone else who was very pivotal in me changing the way I saw myself and my journey on MasterChef and everything that was going to come was Poe. She was Mm. so unapologetic and she told me to be so too. And I think what you grapple with, and I know you're going to ask these questions, but it's about authenticity. So going out and doing something that hasn't been done before, Mm. going out and presenting something that has very little representation um, and you do sort of want to be very sensitive to, hey, a Bengali person sitting at home would never have seen this represented Mm. on a stage. Am I doing this right? Am I the right person to do this? So you're always questioning yourself on that. Poe came in and she said, I think verbatim she said, fuck the aunties, you do you (laughs) and just be yourself. And that's what's most important. Um, Do your version of it. You know this, this is you, this is authentically you. It doesn't matter if there's another version of this dish, put your food out there and see how it goes. And she's just one of those people who have been on our TV for a decade now Mm. and Mm. have broken any single barrier of what it means to be a third culture
0: Australian. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned so many good points there. My brain is just writing through (laughs) what I want to cover. But one of the things you said was Mm. about Melissa, right? Like being a woman of colour who's standing up there, paving the way. I think you absolutely did that for other women of colour Watching oh. the show, because I think if I'm not wrong, you were one of the first mm. South Asian women yeah. to be in the finalists for mm-hmm. Master Chef, which I think is such an incredible thing because there's so many South Asian women out there who maybe feel like they can't take this type of leap of faith, especially when they've got children and other responsibilities. And they do have their life set together that they shouldn't throw a spanner in the works and they should just continue about it so that they don't break the curve. So I think it's incredible that you did make that decision to do that um, because it's inspired so many. Yeah, yeah. and
1: just to piggyback off what Rami was saying, to your point about diversity on shows like this, it's interesting because I think in the very first season of MasterChef, whether it's true or not, there was this debate in the media about whether the winner won because MasterChef needed a white Australian to be the face as the first winner of MasterChef when Poe was the runner-up. Um, but now, since then, we've seen so much diversity in the show. So I think whether that original idea was true or not we're not even having those debates now because we do see that diversity more so than we did earlier on
2: absolutely agree and i think in the beginning i think the things that probably fell on poe's shoulder but poe is who she is she's so unapologetically who she is and whether she meant to or not she did pave that way and yeah. made the norm i think last year particularly because there was three of us south asian girls and we were doing quite well on the show, Dipinda, yeah. Manoli and myself, Yeah, I think there was a lot of debate around, you know, should you cook a curry and things like that, that sort of erupted outside the show. And there was a lot of that going on. And it wasn't just Twitter. It wasn't just social media. It was actually on mainstream radio as well. Even contestants leaving the show would get asked, you know, does Kishwa cook too many curries? Blah, 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 blah. So I think when I get asked that, my reaction or my answer to that usually is when something happens for the first time, it will always be difficult. Mm. And I don't know Poe went through a decade ago, but I can't imagine that it was a smooth conversation. Um, and then last year with having so much South Asian representation, I think when it happens for the first time, it's difficult, but those difficult things pave the way for that to become the norm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And obviously seeing that online, that kind of content, that kind of material would have been confronting for you as well. Is that mentality of, you know, we're breaking the mold, we're shifting the narrative, the approach that you thought of internally to help navigate all of that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. My reason for going on MasterChef or applying in the first place while we were in lockdown was um, as everyone was sort of thinking, you know, what it is that they want to do with this time or what? their lives during the pandemic for me it was to write a book to pass down to my children because my parents are migrants and I was born and brought up here and I have always felt this burden but I felt like a bridge Mm. and I felt that I'll never be able to translate everything that my parents installed in me to my children because I am a third culture I'll never be a Bangladeshi and I'll never be an Indian I will always be an Australian Bengali And for me to write that book to pass down to my children of recipes is sort of like passing down that way of life. What MasterChef did for me, though, was give myself permission to put a piece of myself into that narrative. Love it. And that for me happened actually at Uluru when we were in the heart of Australia. But because I came in saying, no, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to pass down to my children. I, you know, I've lived in Europe. I'm totally in love with, like I said, French pastry. Yeah. We're a metropolitan city. When you mm. grow up here, you grow up cooking other cultures, cooking other cuisine. So if I was cooking Bengali food or Indian food or cooking a curry, it was fully out of choice. It was mm. very intentional. So the backlash that came from that for me was it was irrelevant mm. because I do not know how to cook other things. It wasn't a uh, fallback for me. I was very, very proudly, very, very intentionally cooking these dishes.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely love that. I mean, no one's ever complained about too many pasta dishes <laughs> being cooked on MasterChef, right? So yeah. it's a little bit ironic that lots of curries were getting backlash. Were you nervous about making that decision, though, although you were like, this is exactly what I want to do and I'm proud to do it. Were you still nervous about that decision to cook a lot of bungalow food? Um. I would
2: always take on the challenge. I think whatever the brief was for the day, whatever that challenge was for the day, I always went in with the intention to cook the best dish I knew. Um, And it was never, I never strayed from, you know, what I love the most. If that day it was sort of like to, to showcase my pasta work, if it was to showcase how I use a particular ingredient in a certain way or show some skills in Japanese cuisine, I would do that on that particular day, but when I had the chance to, also yeah. cook Bengali food because yeah. that yeah. food is delicious and it's interesting. And the other thing is, I think a lot of it is brought down to this singular term called curry. And yep. I just hope going into the next generation, no one needs to use that word anymore because mm. I know the difference between you know. A lasagna sheet and pappardelle and spaghetti and fettuccine like mm. if we know the difference between a few types of pastas we should also know that a curry isn't a curry yeah. um yeah. you can't cook osso the same way you cook mud crab you know mm-hmm. so you can't say oh this is a ossobuko beef curry and this is a mud crab curry they're not they're not even near the same thing mm. and everything that we cook and present is not a curry you know yeah. we yeah. use different names and I think just because we don't translate them and we don't take ownership of the names mm. our food we fall back and we're very lazy to term most things as a curry and I think mm. that's what our generation your generation needs to work on taking a lot of ownership of what things should be called yeah.
0: yeah, that's such an interesting point. Cause you never really think of it like that, right? Like everything yeah. sort of bucketed into one category. South Asian food is all just curry. Mm. Call
2: everything a curry, then everything should also be like, I don't know, a casserole or a stew or a tagine <laughs> or a, a bouillabaisse or I don't know, like you can there are so many things that are eaten from Africa to Europe to Asia that can be yeah. called technically a curry.
0: Yeah one thing I do want to go back to you mentioned before how when you first started filming you were a little bit shy and a little bit timid and you never realized for myself for example as a viewer of MasterChef that these are real people real humans behind the screen for the most part without any tv or media experience in the past so I can't imagine how difficult that part of it all would have been for you what was the biggest I guess learning about yourself that you had during that process
2: I think my mum put it the best she said um you need to do everything you can in your power and then let it go to the universe so the things that were most and for me it was actually being on tv yeah. um yeah lean into it and then freefall. Let the universe do its thing and that's it. You have zero control over what's going to happen. Mm. So I think it was letting go of all control. Wow. Love
1: that. Um, my culinary skills are, I would say, very limited. So I can cook <laughs> well enough for myself to survive, but I would never share the food that I make with other people because, to be honest, it's not that great. And recently I've been getting my grandma to teach me some South Asian dishes, some of which we posted on our Instagram. Yeah. My grandma is very tech savvy, so <laughs> I would drop off a dish at her place and then the next day I'll get an email roasting me about what I ah. was missing, what I did wrong, and so on and so forth. <laughs> um, but what really like blows my mind is that some of the challenges on MasterChef. Like I think an episode the other day, the contestants were given four ingredients. It was like anchovies, leek, saffron and something else. And then they had to like make a dish out of it. And the fact that people can process so quickly that mm. they could use these four very different ingredients and come up with a really beautiful meal just blows my mind because it's so foreign for my culinary abilities. Um, for you, what was something that really surprised you when you were filming the show in, in terms of the production side that someone who's just a viewer of the show would wouldn't realize?
2: Um, I think TV is very slow. They're very, very long days. They can be even like for a short day, it can be anywhere from seven to 14 hours. Um, So TV is slow, but time goes very, very fast. When they say you've got, you know, 75 minutes on the clock, you have to factor in that you're going to go get equipment. You're going to go to the pantry. Mm. Big learning curve is I'm very, very organised in my house. I always have, like, my ginger paste, garlic paste, things like that for the week, or I have peeled onions. There are so many little tips and tricks to putting together quick and easy meals that I would use at home. And every time you start cooking something, you sort of have to start from scratch, you're like peeling garlic, peeling onions, peeling ginger. So mm. everything you see, everything you decide to do, every element you decide to cook is from scratch. There are no crazy. shortcuts in the MasterChef kitchen. It's very technical, and you have to really sort of factor in time. So I think time was my biggest. Um, it was just like, wow, this is tough. That's the challenge.
1: Yeah, and I guess with most reality TV, even though it's called reality TV, there is a little bit of, I guess, tinkering from the producers to sell the show and make it a bit more dramatic than what it might actually be. Um, I'm not sure how much you can reveal with MasterChef in particular, but is there anything like that that a viewer might not realise or something that's getting swept under the rug or changed that we might fall for, but in reality, it's a little bit different? I
2: think maybe just the build-up to the interviews and the IVs and while you're cooking um, we have a little story team and a production team sort of being like are your onions burning is there something going on on that <laughs> other part so I guess it's just because there's no drama on the show it is truly such a wholesome show <laughs> yeah. and everyone they're supporting each other because there's no actual drama between people the drama is in the food so maybe it's just asking people on the gantry like you know do you think so-and-so is in trouble today and building up a little bit of food tension, I guess? But otherwise, no, not really. Um, I will say my son and my family who came to watch me in the finals, something that they pointed out, which you sort of realise early on and you forget months later, is that there's no music. It's actually Mm. very quiet. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) right. You hear that very MasterChef music. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. (laughs) And you're cooking my son's like it was so weird like there was no music
0: (laughs) oh i never thought of it like that so you're literally just like (laughs) listening to everyone chopping away and like making all their dishes yeah oh my god that's crazy what was the experience like i guess like senden said before some of these challenges are beyond insane like the dessert challenges and some of these dishes that you have to cook I would assume that as someone who was mainly cooking at home and stuff, like it's never things you would have tried before, right? Like there's so many unique things. What was that experience like? I know you said time management was something that was on your side and because you were good at that, you were able to use that and leverage that. But aside from that, what was the experience like having to make really difficult dishes like that? I think
2: you sort of grow into who you become as a cook and you see that because it's such a long show it's you know 6 7 months before we're there at the finale and it's an intense training ground so you're learning and you're growing all the time when you're not on set you're sort of at home cooking or not at home we were staying in the mastership apartments and you're also around people and you're all learning off each other and you're growing and you know this is your foodie family. That's what it is. It's like this intense um I'd like to say summer camp <laughs> where everyone really goes in and you're honing your skills and you become this person and I guess you don't realize when you're in the show. It's only when you watch it from the outside where you go, "Oh my gosh, that happened in that span of time, so yeah, it is. Cool, but you pick up things very quickly. Mm. Yeah. I
1: love hearing about the behind the scenes of all these things that we consume, living with the other contestants. What was that like? What was it like living away from your family for as long as you did? How much contact did you have with the outside world, being on campus at MasterChef? Tell us a bit about that.
2: So you have little to no contact with the outside world, but you are, like I said, living with a big foodie family. And when I think initially when I first met the other 24 or 36 contestants in the beginning, it was just like that aha moment where I was like, oh my gosh, here are 35 other people who actually want to talk about food all day (laughs) and share the same passion. So that was kind of cool, not feeling like a nerd or an outsider anymore or wanting to discuss particular restaurant or a particular book or you know when you do this like have you ever come across this particular thing so everyone sort of shares the same passion Mm. yeah Yeah. apart from that we didn't live in a big house so other seasons before us would live in the master chef house and because of covid we were living in apartments so i was living with a housemate so we would all cook and share our food most of the time people are quite exhausted so you come off sets and Sort of unwind, prepare for the next day. They're really long days. So Mm. it was like that. But living away from home, that was a huge, huge, huge adjustment because I feel like I was, um, I went from being the center of my home and the center of my world. You know, I've got my parents and my husband and my kids and everything to step away from that. I had a whole tribe step in Mm. and take over that role. My friends, my family, my sister, my mom, my dad, my husband (laughs) and um, yeah I just everyone at school as well everyone was so kind the teachers so stepping away made me realize that maybe I could have taken a little bit more for myself before I held so much on my old uh, like sort of held all of this responsibility on my own shoulders because to me that was my whole world that was like I was that pillar that I thought if I moved away, everything would collapse, but nothing mm. collapsed. Everything was fine, apart from the fact that my husband would buy my children um, sandwiches from a gas station on the way to... school. <laughs> oh, <no>. was pretty-
1: <laughs> Efficiency. <laughs> so much
2: efficiency, but a little disappointing. Oh, uh, my
0: God. You can't have a wife on MasterChef and be <laughs> buying your kids sandwiches from a gas station. station. <laughs> So that's the one thing I was like, okay, I've got some
2: cleaning up to do. I need to make them unlearn a few of these things.
1: It's (laughs) interesting that you have all these like life learnings that mm. you don't realize when you go on a show like this right like you realize all the things that you did and also the number of people you have in your corner who can play those roles if you did need to step away for a bit but just going back to something you said earlier i would have thought that having uh, spent a full day filming in such an intense environment cooking that the last thing you would have been wanting to do is speak about cooking with the other contestants of the show or cooking in the master chef apartments but obviously you've got such a big passion for it where it doesn't even matter you just want to be doing it 24 7.
2: Yeah, that and like the days that you shoot, um, people usually unwind and, and go to bed. But those weekends, those birthdays, there were so many other things mm. that happened behind the scenes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it would have been such an incredible experience having those people around you as even just as a support system, right? Like being away from family for so long. These are people, they're not just contestants. Yeah. They kind of, like yeah. you said, become your foodie family and you would probably have lent on each other a lot during that experience as well. And you did seem to get quite close, particularly with the other two finalists from the show. What was your relationship with them like? And are you guys still in touch now? So Pete
2: is in Sydney and Justin lives in Perth. Yeah, So we haven't seen each other in a really long time. Uh, we're scheduled to meet up next month. But yeah, they feel like family. Like you've just gone through something together that is quite I mean until you go through it you sort of can't describe what you've been through so it's Mm. definitely this shared experience and that will always stay with me like I will always always remember the last few weeks and what we went through together Mm. um, with Pete and Justin so it was a really really special special time.
0: Yeah absolutely and I guess looking at your life host Chef, you know, we were looking into all of the incredible things you were doing. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up with you was, I mean, obviously, when it comes to your cooking and your food, one of your biggest aims is sharing your culture and putting that proudly out into the world. But in addition to that, I did see some posts and things about Changing the narrative when it comes to stereotypes when it comes to cooking and food, especially in the South Asian community with it being a woman's role. Mm-hmm. I'd love if you could talk to that a little bit because I think you had done like a talk or something about that if I'm not wrong.
2: Uh, I think it initially um, it came sort of off the back of a lot of questions where postmastership women would go on like these press junkets. I'd have questions asked to me like, what sort of message would you like to give to all the women out there? And what would you like to tell little girls who are watching you? And it was sort of like, why would, what, what does cooking have to do with being male or female? Mm. My father is such a great cook. And in my family, my role models were my mum and my dad. And we always fight for the stove space and bench space in the kitchen like literally we always fight about who's cooking and so growing up I always saw my mum cook I always saw my dad cook um, to be asked very I guess sexist questions like mm. what do you want to tell women who are following you and what would you like to tell to your female friends I think cooking is one of those things that are a life skill it's not a skill that should fall upon women's shoulders it's it, we all eat at least you know two to three meals a day yeah. so I just don't understand why we sort of have this mentality and I don't want to say it's just in South Asian culture or Asian culture it's still very well wide that we have this mentality that women somehow pick up those extra chores or those extra pieces mm-hmm. everyone should know how to at least put a bowl of ramen in front of them <laughs> like Absolutely. everyone should have that skill to feed themselves it's like tying your shoelaces Definitely. Sure.
1: Love that message and love what you're standing for. But also you're doing a lot of philanthropic work with regards to things like the World Food Program and Feast for Freedom. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with those two organizations and what they're all about as well?
2: So with the World Food Program, it was obviously a very, very natural fit, just all of the work they do. But then some particular campaigns that we worked on last year, one of them was Stop the Waste. And it was just... Very, very much in line with what we talk about even in MasterChef or post-MasterChef and my life on the farm as well about zero wastage and being very considerate about the way we eat and what we eat but the way we shop as well. Mm. And, you know, something like one in nine people go to bed hungry but global food wastage amounts to something like US $1 trillion loss per year. So it's not that the world doesn't produce enough food. It's just food distribution channels, Mm. just such a disparity between where food is distributed. So being considerate about the way we shop and not wasting food is really important. And it's just something that we can all change from our homes. It's not Mm, something that need to be fixed with government policy. It really very, very much relies on all of us and our personal mission and philosophy to do so. Um, And then with ASRC being a homegrown Melbourne-based not-for-profit, they're the largest non-government-funded organisation and cause that's very, very, very close to my heart is they work with asylum seekers and refugees Mm. and it's that difficult conversation that as Australians we need to have and speak about and really sort of, not just reconcile, we, we need to drive that change. So, yeah. my work with the SRC and then Feast of Freedom, and we have a few upcoming programs coming up, is something that I'm very, very passionate about.
0: It's incredible.
1: Yeah, I think to your point, those are things that sometimes we don't always think about, and we do have so much control individually to help this issue. and It's been cool for us because in the past, with previous episodes that we've done, we've seen other businesses like Dubber Drop over in the UK do kind of environmentally friendly and with the framework around zero emissions Mm. to kind of change the narrative of you know we're consuming so much processed food let's take it back to how we're originally meant to be eating and do it in a way where we're not wasting and we're giving back to the community and helping the environment as much as we can in this way what are some pieces of advice that you would give for people day to day in terms of Being more conscious about that wastage and little changes that we can make that might be easy for us where we can be making a big impact in a very simple way.
2: The easiest thing to do with the greatest impact, I believe, is to organize your grocery shopping. I think that's where it begins, being very, very considerate and organized, making a list of what I consume. Because often when you go shopping, especially if you're hungry, you're sort of picking up a whole bunch of things and they're the things we throw out we throw yeah. out all those extra you know tin cans of tomatoes and cereal boxes that we're never going to get to the bottom of so I think it's being organized and knowing this is what I'm going to consume during this week that I think is a good place to start like that's the baby step that we can all take
0: yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think you're totally right. Just being a little more organized and knowing exactly what you need and the quantities of those things as well, right? Because like vegetables and things can rot so easily if you don't use it up straight away. So yeah, that's yeah. awesome advice. I guess going back to your life a little bit, post Chef, how has your life looked like? How has it changed? Where do you really want to lead when it comes to food and cooking? So... I think when I was on MasterChef,
2: I always saw myself going into writing. That's the next thing that I wanted to do. MasterChef changed me in a way where I really, really fell in love with being in an industrial kitchen. So I know myself as a restaurateur or owning my own restaurant, but I really, really enjoyed being in that kitchen and cooking for people and the creative process of making dishes and creating dishes with a particular brief. So post MasterChef, I've had the opportunity to do residencies. First I left and I trained under Chef Yomo at Ishizuka, which was incredible. I think that's where yeah. I grew the most in my food style. And then post that I went and I had my menu run off Tonka, which is a restaurant here in Melbourne. So I was able again to create dishes but then also showcase my desserts which I was really like it's always really fun to experiment with desserts especially if you're using spices or ingredients that you don't usually find in desserts so I really enjoyed that and I had a line in vodka and then I went off at the end of last year I was in Vegas for a little while and LA came back went to taka so now post master chef I get invited into these spaces and I get Mm. to create these menus and do these little residencies or events where yeah, I get to be creative. I get to cook. But my bread and butter of what I really, really love to do and what I am working on is my book that hopefully will release in 2023. Incredible. That's
1: awesome. And we can't wait to read that book when it's out. I'm sure there'll be so many beautiful insights yeah. throughout that. Yeah. Um, as kind of our last question, uh, for anyone who's listening, who might be having a little bit of an itch to apply to MasterChef, what advice would you have for them?
2: Oh, my gosh, just do it. Honestly, for me, it was something that I didn't really think too much about. It was quite yellow. And it got me into something that I just really, really love. It's almost like a new chapter in a new decade of my life. So if you've got that itch, I'd say scratch it. (laughs) Love that.
0: I love that. And I love that you are writing that book now after, even like before you started MasterChef, that's something you'd always want to do to pass on that heritage to your children. So yeah, really looking forward to reading that. We end our episodes with a thought-provoking question that we would love for you to answer, not food-related. This is a question which our previous guest has left for you. And then after you answer, we would love for you to also come up with a question to leave for our next guest, if that sounds good. Yes. So the question for you is, if the average human lifespan was only 40 years, how would you live your life differently?
2: Ooh. Um, I'd probably move out of home earlier, mm. do everything that I've done up until now but in super speed. Yeah. So I really like the life that I've been given. Um, I'd do that and then probably also live on the land more, spend less time in the mm. city, live mm. on the farm more and travel.
1: I love that. I guess my response to that question is kind of like twofold because I feel like if the average human lifespan was 40 years, which it was historically, all of our like timelines that yeah. we set for ourselves, mm. is just going to be squashed into 40 years. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think much would actually change because mm. in theory, we would just do it in a shorter time frame.
2: Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking relatively full life. I guess studying wouldn't take 13 years and degrees wouldn't take four years. Yeah. And <laughs>
1: those things would
2: be like obsolete. Exactly. <laughs>
1: but that being said if individually my lifespan was only 48 years yeah i'd completely agree with everything that you said kishwa i'd want to spend more time living on the earth and not putting off all these things that we say oh yeah i'll do it when xyz happens Mm. or wait until this happens and then i'll do that Um, i'll do all of those things now rather than later so yeah maybe something else for me to think about about right yeah i
0: like the response that you just said sen i was thinking the same thing about doing things now and that's something that COVID also taught me because it's always like, oh, I'll go to that concert later or I'll travel later. I can't get leave now. But then, you know, you didn't even have those options when you were in lockdown. So now I'm like, yes, I'll just do everything. I'll go here. I'll do whatever. I'll meet up with people. I think that's the other thing as well, just giving a lot of time to your relationships and the people Mm -hmm. around you, right? Like if you knew that your life was half of the average lifespan that it is now, you don't have as much time to spend with people around you. So that's probably something else that I'd do differently.
1: For sure. Uh, Zakushma, do you have a question for our next guest? It can be absolutely anything, but hopefully something that will make our audience think a little.
0: Hmm.
2: I'd like to say, sort of leaning off the question that we just had, life's too short for bad food or bad meals is what I say. So what's your death row meal?
0: (sighs) I love oh, good that question. question. Great oh question. My God. Yeah. Kishore, thank you so much. This has been a true pleasure to interview you. A um, Random fact, I have mutual friends with Justin Narayan, so ah! I will be seeing him next month at a wedding in Sydney. So I will yeah. let him know that we interviewed you, but we really appreciate your time. Tell him I said hello.
2: Oh, well, tell him I said hello and how's your mum? i'll I'll
0: specifically ask him that
1: yeah i loved speaking to you kishwa and i don't know about you Romy, but i'm starving right now so <laughs> i'm gonna go cook up something that's gonna be very disappointing and mediocre <laughs> uh
2: thanks for having me i had a really really good time and good luck with your podcast and i'm glad this came into my life because i'm part of your audience now so oh, thank, oh, thank you. you so much that seriously Pretty means a lot to your podcast thank you oh, thank awesome. you so much
0: appreciate it so much <laughs>
1: Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We had a blast recording with Kishwa and can't wait to see what's in store for her. Make sure to follow Kishwa on Instagram at kishwa underscore chowdhury to keep up to date with all of her exciting and important projects.
0: As always, be in touch with us on Instagram at stuckinbetween underscore podcasts. We love connecting with you and hearing your thoughts and suggestions. So please keep the feedback coming.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Bye.